And this is the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, exploring contemporary Buddhism at the edge, and at play in the great feast of knowledge. Sponsored by O'Connell Coaching. Visit imperfectbuddha.com coaching if you're interested in exploring the themes that emerge in this podcast and engaging with the challenges of a contemporary spiritual practice. To what degree is the secular at odds with the religious, the modern at odds with the traditional, and Western at odds with Eastern? Today's guest, a returning one, will be talking about secularizing Buddhism. No, not secular Buddhism specifically, but the process of secularization as it has taken place within Buddhism more broadly. In fact, it will be looking at a dynamic tradition and dynamic change. Richard K. Payne was with us back two years ago talking about critical reflections on Buddhism, and you can certainly expect some more of that critical reflection to take place today. This episode is in honour of Richard's book, which has just come out. It's not just his own work, it's actually a project that involves collaboration with wide-ranging authors and thinkers, some of whom have been on this podcast too, such as David L. McMahon and Ron Purser. Now, the book is a substantial one. There's a lot of material in there. It's published by Shambhala Books and really attempts to bridge the gap between the academic and the lay person's understanding of our current moment and the role of the secularizing wave going through Buddhism more broadly. It's a more interesting discussion than you may first think. I was a little bit hesitant at first when approached uh, to interview Richard, but I have to say on looking through the text and reading, I found lots uh, to get my teeth into. I tweeted about this relatively recently, and that tweet mirrors much of what it is that I asked Richard to discuss. Concepts such as secular subjectivity, the hedonistic calculus, imminent Buddhism, cruel optimism, the divided self, and paradoxes within the mindfulness movement and in Buddhism more broadly are discussed in today's episode. These are all topics I claim uh, throughout will be highly relevant to you as a practitioner and as a thinker. For those who don't know, Richard K. Payne is the Yehan Numata Professor of Japanese Buddhist Studies at the Institute of Buddhist Studies in Berkeley, California. He's active in the study of Japanese Buddhism, but also ritual. Richard has made a series of very interesting critiques of current Western Buddhism, and of Western engagement with more traditional forms of Buddhism too. And he's a great resource for those looking to think more deeply about the wider themes running through their own personal practice. Just a quick note, various pieces of writing are in the works. I do try to get these things done, but my God, is life demanding? Life is demanding, and it's hard to find time to do very much these days. That's not a complaint, it's just a rather interesting observation one that I'm living through. But eventually I will find the time and the follow-up pieces on critical practice will be 
available. Enjoy this episode and as always, share. And if you like it, well, why not make a small donation at the imperfectbuddha.com website. Welcome back to the Imperfect Buddha podcast with another interview with a repeat guest of ours, Richard K. Payne, who's coming on today to talk about a book that he's been very much involved in. It's called Secularizing Buddhism, New Perspectives on a Dynamic Tradition. Uh, The text features a whole load of contributions, and we'll be hearing about some of those today, and Richard's own contribution to the text itself. I'd uh, like to dive in, really, with with a bit of context, I guess. I mean, if we're going to talk about the secular, which clearly has a rich and complex history, let's start off with a quick definition. So what working definition of the secular does the book use? And has the way we currently use this term changed much over the last few decades? One of the goals that I had for the book was to allow contributors to explore their own understandings. So there's no one overarching definition or understanding that I attempted to impose on everyone, but rather because this is intended as a snapshot of the current contributions to the field, current thinking on the matter from a variety of different perspectives, allowing each contributor to um, develop their thoughts in their own way. My own interest in this is most evident in the chapter of my own contribution is the uh, rhetorical relationship between secular and religious and how the two are a interact with one another so that as one works toward a secular form of Buddhism, one is at the same time creating an image of and in some cases actually creating reactions that constitute a traditional form of Buddhism. So it's not that there is one thing that exists as secular Buddhism, uh, independent and autonomous from religious Buddhism uh, or traditional Buddhism or classical Buddhism, uh, but rather that the two concepts are in dynamic relationship to one another. And so they're constantly moving targets on both sides uh, because of that relationship. Obviously, there are consequences to this uh, dynamic tradition, as you're calling it. What are some of the key consequences of the secularizing process within contemporary Buddhism? And why do you think they matter? One of the areas that I think is um, clearest is the shift of sources of authority. Much of what we know about the history of Buddhism is located in terms of monastic authority. And beginning in the early 19th century, not that there weren't lay activities prior to that, but as a way of understanding what Buddhism is and modernizing Buddhism, lay participation became an increasingly important part of the uh, development of Buddhism in Asia. And that includes both Southeast Asia and in East Asia. So that shift away from monastic authority to lay leadership and to non-monastic forms of authority, such that, you know, today there are people who may have had some monastic experience in their past themselves, but who do not present themselves as monastics. And their authority is much more rooted in personal experience with meditation, their personal history with practice, uh, rather than with their status as monks or nuns. So I think this is one of the most significant changes of 
what's going on today, that is also then in terms of professionalization uh, of the the, uh, role of the teacher so that you have uh, institutions like the mindfulness trainings, which borrow from uh, from Buddhism, but which provide training programs that are uh, entirely separate from Buddhist forms of authority and training. I think that these are very, very significant changes to the way in which Buddhism exists in the present. Yeah, I was expecting to some degree to hear a little bit more about the topics that come to mind, like the secularization process tends to eliminate belief in the afterlife and, uh, you know, tends to invoke ideas of uh, skepticism towards karma and, and whatnot. Is that still an important issue in your mind and in your thinking about all this? Yes, the ways in which um, the doctrines and teachings have been adapted because of the broader historical perspective that I have taken on this and the broader social perspective, there are groups that share a lot of the characteristics of secular Buddhism, such as lay leadership, but which also have practices, beliefs that are probably would not be accepted by most people who self-identify as secular Buddhists here today. So you do have people who have a very modern kind of institutional form, and yet at the same time also have belief in the efficacy of mantra, in future rebirth, and so on. So what are treated as key doctrinal issues by some secularizing writers today, I think that the situation is much more complex than that, and that while indeed that focus on doctrine becomes a a common source of discussion, I think that that also is very, very malleable. And, you know, one of the uh, secular Buddhist websites is very, actually, I believe that this changed in the time that I was doing this research. Uh, And it now has a disclaimer that says, well, most secular Buddhists do not believe in rebirth. We're broad enough and willing to accept those people who claim to be secular Buddhists, but who do believe in rebirth. Uh, And that this is a matter of personal choice and personal way of being a Buddhist, a secular Buddhist in the present. One of the things that is in a sense most central to my own work is that doctrine is given way too much privilege. That's true in religious studies generally, and I think that that's true in much of the way in which religion is considered and treated in the realms of popular religion uh, in the West. It is rooted in a kind of humanistic Enlightenment era belief in the uh, centrality of the ego as an agency, as making determinations about what I should and shouldn't do. The idea that if one has proper doctrine, if one has proper beliefs, then actions follow from that. And yet so much of what we know in the present about the working of the mind is that people will adjust their beliefs depending upon their actions, that these are not independent, that action is not derivative from belief. So that's um, why I think that doctrine is not as central to the ways in which secular Buddhism is being developed in the present and its relationship to other forms of Buddhism. Do you think it's fair when talking about the secular and the non-secular and also this idea of the anti-secular to talk about things being lost, to talk about the need for preservation 
Is there a need perhaps to negotiate more effectively this this conceptual relationship between past and present, secular and the non? Yeah, I think it's not just a problem with the secularizing movement within contemporary Buddhism, but I think that it's a, a long history within, well, basically all religions, that the emphasis on a particular orthodoxy and oftentimes a corresponding focus on a limited number of texts, a limited corpus of uh, sources, inherently involves the loss of if not the act of rejection, of other aspects of the tradition. I remember reading one secular Buddhist writer who was attempting to respond to a question about Shin Buddhism, was able to give what, from my perspective, was a very, very shallow and impressionistic response that did not effectively respect the depth and complexity of that tradition which is rather peculiar because the um, Shen Buddhist tradition is a very, very modernized tradition. It's been pointed out more than once that among all the Buddhists, the Shen tradition in the United States was, for example, performing um, weddings between lesbian and gay partners in the 50s and 60s, that this was not an issue for them, and that this was a kind of a very, very, can be seen as a very modern very secular orientation, a rejection of the kinds of strictures based in Christianity that society had really not begun to question at that time. So yes, when a particular orientation is taken as, in some sense, the truth, and the rest of the tradition is marginalized or rejected, then yeah, I think that a lot is in danger of being lost. One of the things that I personally feel is very important is that the respect for the entirety of the tradition be maintained. There is a series of teachings by Jay Garfield available on YouTube in which he's addressing nuns in the Buddhist, uh, Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And I was struck by the fact that in one of the early hours of that long series of teachings, he makes the point that it's necessary to include in one's study the Pali Canon. This is from the perspective of someone addressing nuns in the Tibetan tradition and telling them that they they need to be aware of and respectful and study the Pali Canon and to treat that also as Buddha Vachana, as the words of the Buddha, that we should not engage in a process of kind of exclusion but rather recognize that these traditions have all been maintained for hundreds and, in many cases, thousands of years. And someone has found something of value there. There has been some reason that the effort has been put into maintaining these. And we take it all too for granted um, how easily it is for us today to access basically the entirety of the canon in a variety of languages. That's so very different from what it was like 200, 300 years ago, that recently, when manuscripts were maintained, uh, in some cases, having to be recopied by hand, or in other cases, printing blocks cut quite laboriously, and paper made, and then the blocks printed. I remember as a graduate student, 
we were standing around the copy machine at the departmental office at UC Berkeley making copies of the Tibetan Buddhist canon, the um, Peking version. I wondered out loud whether or not this counted for merit, that we were copying, making more copies of the canon with a Xerox machine. We have a great deal of ease with this and fail, I think, as a result to realize how much effort basically the ancestors, the people who have gone before us, have put into maintaining and uh, developing, in many cases, literally preserving with their own handwriting the canon. So I think that our a postmodern perspective would give us a way of orienting towards accepting the validity of the entire of the canon as something that is of value, whether or not we personally find it of value or not. Yeah, it's interesting. There's quite a lot going on there. You seem to be echoing Garfield's sense of a need to respect tradition, um, but also recognize how tradition has functioned to keep these teachings alive, but also create the basis upon which they would survive to today. It's interesting. There's an element of almost uh, a sort of conservative ideal in there as well, in, in which tradition is recognized and respected. But you also mention postmodernism. Yeah, why? what's the connection there? I'm not sure I'm necessarily seeing that. I can see how the idea that, you know, the secular might be viewed as a kind of form of progress and therefore an improvement on the past would certainly have its have profound limitations. What what does the postmodern add? Does it just provide us with a sense of the the multiplicity of value, or is it something else? I think that for me personally, the value needs to be distinguished from claims of authority, claims of a singular truth. And so that sense of plurality, you know, I mean, it's such an old, widely shared saying in Buddhism that there are 84,000 Dharma doors. I see that as a postmodern perspective in the sense that it's not locating truth in one singular version of Buddhism. This is getting a little sketchy because these are areas that I haven't have only begun to kind of explore for myself. But the very idea that there is a singular truth is very, very problematic. And in many cases, seems to me to function as a claim, a power move, that the person who says there is a singular truth and I know it, I have it, and I will tell you what it is. That person is making claims of authority and power, and yet they're just one voice. If we really value the 84,000 Dharma doors, if we really believe that effectively each person finds their own way, then the idea that there is a singular truth and that everything that doesn't match that is to be rejected, I think fails to, to recognize the validity of other people and the validity of their quest, their individual efforts, hence the notion that this is somehow a postmodern view in which the complexity of that view of things uh, is acknowledged and not subsumed under claims of authority. Yeah, you said the word sketchy, and I, I think you know many of us are, have got thoughts going on in our heads that, that need more time to, to evolve. But I, I think like I said, it's interesting. There are elements of preservation in there and recognition of the multiplicity or validity of 
of multiple perspectives and ways of uh, understanding something as complex and historically rich as the Dharma. Very interesting. But uh, look, let's, um, let's dive into some of the contributions to the book. What I'd like to do is, to, as I mentioned at the beginning when we were chatting, pick out a few sections. I won't go through all of them because I don't think we have time, but uh, I'd like, I'm going to finish up by coming back to your own contribution and what you've, you've learned through being involved in this process more, more broadly. So some of the people that have made these contributions have also been past guests of ours. So uh, I'm going to, to mention at least two of them. But uh, let's start here. Um, obviously, this book is new. It's making a contribution that you and uh, the, the people contributing feel are important. I mean, let's see if we can come up with a very short sales pitch. Why do you think generally this book is making a, a useful and necessary contribution to current discourse on issues uh, within contemporary Buddhism? I think that locating the secular Buddhist discourse in a range of different perspectives, historical, social, philosophical, that that helps the reader in orienting themselves towards their own choices about how to be a secular Buddhist. I really see the point of the book as being empowering the reader to be reflective and, in the positive sense, critical about what they themselves are choosing to do and believe and understand about what Buddhism is and what their relationship to the practice is. And that's why I see it as a snapshot of the current situation, a snapshot taken from actually multiple snapshots by different people The goal of the work is to give the reader tools for understanding their own way of being in relationship to Buddhism. Presumably these are snapshots that current practitioners may not be privy to. So some of the ways I think in which those snapshots can be understood is by picking out some of the key key concepts that might be less well known amongst contemporary practitioners. So that's Let's have a look at some of those. So David McMahon is an interesting chap. I spoke to him before about a variety of topics. But one one thing that comes up in his contribution, uh, which I haven't heard from him before, is this idea of secular subjectivity. Can you say a little bit about that, Richard? What's secular subjectivity? And again, why should it matter to to those engaging in uh, secular style practice? McMahon's contribution outlines the shift from a classical orientation of what it means to be a person as a unitary being in the world as the source of agency for oneself, source of decision-making, and contrasts that with a more recent view that sees the self as plural in nature, and as sometimes thought of as fragmentary, and yet I think that that terminology already loads the image in a kind of negative way, rather that there is a a whole sense, a network of parts that one is that are interacting with one another. And that kaleidoscopic view of the self is very different from the classical one. And 
seeing those two in relationship to one another, I think provides David with a way of talking about different styles of meditation that are present today. You know, there's been a fair amount of uh, criticism of mindfulness as contributing to the sense of an isolated individual who is responsible for improving themselves uh, in a corporate um, or social environment. And David effectively points out that, yes, that's one perspective about how meditative practice, how mindfulness can be used that is rooted in that more traditional sense of the isolated individual, the autonomous person. And in contrast to that, there are forms, ways in which meditation, including mindfulness, can be employed that are much more responsive to the awareness of the ongoing changing nature of the, of the person, uh, of the plurality of every person, and how that kind of meditation rather than reinforcing the sense of needing to have be in charge of oneself is much more open and flexible one of the things that has struck me about the former kind of meditation and the way it's presented is that it effectively enforces a fragmentation of the self and into two parts uh, in which there is, you know, these are even referred to in the, some of the writings by different terms. There's me and myself, and the me, the I, is given responsibility for effecting change in the self. So that rather than creating a sense of unity in the way in which a person is in the in the world, it creates an oppositional form of I am going to change myself. A lot of the Literature, for example, on self-hypnosis is rooted in that kind of notion that I'm going to take charge and change myself. And I think that David's exploration of the two different kinds of subjectivity of individualism and fragmentation allows us to see that mindfulness and meditation practice more generally is not an autonomous, neutral tool of some kind. It's not a mental technology that is disconnected from ways of viewing the self, but rather is deeply integrated with the ways in which the view, uh, the ways in which the self is viewed. So it's not like applying some tool and having an automatic consequence, but rather a way in which the self is reflected in the practice. This question of the individual as an isolated, autonomous form that practices on somehow an internal self at the same time is picked up, of course, by, by Ron Peirce, too, in his critique of neoliberal Buddhism. But it's, it's a persistent issue that I think we're still struggling to talk about. And I, I think David's way of, of coming at it is interesting. I think we're, we inevitably, if we're, if we're going to do justice to both history and the present, we end up coming towards models of selfhood that are multiple rather than uh, dualistic or singular and totalizing and unifying. But this, again, it really picks up on one of the issues within the, the postmodern ideal of the self, which is you know, fragmentary, right, infinitely formable or malleable. And I think um, psychology still has something to say on what it means for a person to make an assertion about themselves being the person acting on themselves. It's on one level there's a kind of philosophical dichotomy there which has to be addressed, but on another it's it's a kind of practical take on 
on how to assert oneself in facing something like change. And it's pretty complex, I think, but this this is certainly a useful and interesting contribution. Um, and I think for a lot of practitioners, this itself would be a really uh, helpful thing to just think about more. You know, what does it mean to, to be a person that practices and to even be self-aware of such a thing? Um, and what would it mean to improve within within the kind of historical vision of selfhood within the various Buddhisms. I think, again, this is something that's often left aside by secular Buddhist thought and mindfulness more broadly. But uh, there are other terms too, and I want to I want to mention a couple of the, the other authors as well. Uh, Charles Jones picks up a rather interesting, historically, uh, philosophically important concept, uh, uses the term the hedonistic calculus, which I'm going to guess is... <laughs> Uh, a, a term that most practitioners will not be aware of. Uh, can you can you speak to that? Because <laughs> it's kind of important, isn't it? It's actually kind of fundamental, and I think it links quite nicely to the idea of the secular subject, subjectivity. So what is hedonistic calculus, and how does it relate to, well, Western Buddhism and practitioners? Hedonistic calculus um, is a theory of ethics, um, goes back to Jeremy Bentham, I guess it is, um, yeah. who proposed that an action that generates the most good is ethical and is better than any other action that does not generate as much good. And I think that the notion of how we evaluate Buddhism in the present seems to be often cast as what is going to bring me the most satisfaction. You know, the terminology that's, that is used about well-being, uh, human flourishing, and things like that, I think often give a too sanguine an overlay on practice. It's not always easy. It's not always pleasant. Practice brings up really scary stuff sometimes and really awkward and painful material from one's own life. And so to judge practices and teachings on the basis of whether or not it makes me more happy, whether it makes me more satisfied with my place in the world, can be too short-term a view, and that that's why there need to be, I think, support systems in place that help people through those really awkward, uncomfortable, threatening, anxiety-provoking moments in their practice which in some cases can stretch on, you know, for a long time. Recognize that there's a danger for the solitary practitioner to um, just kind of, well, you know, today I'm too busy. That sit yesterday wasn't very satisfying, so I'm not going to bother today. I, you know, when I feel better, I'll get back to it, and then it just drops away. And that's one of the reasons, I think, that there is a lot of value in the emphasis on community, uh, is that it helps people through those short-term periods in which the hedonistic calculus is saying, this is not worthwhile because it's painful, to get through them to a point beyond them where it is possible for the practice to become, uh, to be seen as beneficial. Uh, and the pain and suffering that has been experienced along the way uh, is placed in a broader context. So the hedonistic calculus of just calculating what makes me feel good right now is too short-term a view on the longer view of what makes me feel better. Current pain may be valuable. 
current suffering, current uncomfort, discomfort may in the longer term be much more beneficial. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, especially with the kind of uh, culture and society we live in today, which is so saturated with this uh, short-term stimulation and, and, and pleasure incentive that relates to, you know, mobile phones and digital technology and the kind of um, fixes that it provides. Um, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's something I've been thinking about recently too, especially if we accept the idea that we can't go back, you know, we can't go back in time. The present is the present, the future will be different. But the need for community, for support and I think also for people who, you know, can actually educate others on the need to recognize these patterns such as the hedonistic calculus within ourselves is part and parcel of a more mature practice. And I think you're absolutely right. Um, without community or without others, you're, you're not basically equipped to, to face that kind of very, very deep drive to, to return to the pleasure. Yeah. Again, these topics are pretty rich. We could, we could talk more about them, but I'd like to continue. Uh, there are two contributions by, I don't know if I want to call them practitioners. I mean, they are, but that seems to sort of uh, undervalue their role. That's uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi and Gil Fronsdale. Um, let's talk about Bhikkhu Bodhi. He's a, he's a really interesting chap. I mean, he's very, very bright, very sharp-minded, uh, but he's also, you know, an ordained monk who has a certain commitment to traditional Buddhism and has, you know, argued against secular forms of Buddhism in the past. Um, this time round, he uses this concept of imminent Buddhism. Uh, imminence is a concept that we've used on the podcast quite a few times, but uh, I'd like to hear um, how Bhikkhu is using it, Bhikkhu Bodhi. Um, so what is what is imminent Buddhism, Richard, and, and how convinced are you by uh, his use of the concept? I think it's a very useful concept. It provides a third term, which is often valuable um, as avoiding the false dichotomies. So in his essay, he sketches out the two versions of Buddhism. One is the secular and the other traditional. And in doing so, focuses a lot of the attention on uh, some of the key doctrinal disagreements that you had mentioned earlier. And then he says that there's this third form, the imminent Buddhism, as he uh, labels it, that says not to be so concerned with those kinds of abstractions, those kinds of philosophical or intellectual issues as determining what one does, but rather, you know, there are fairly straightforward gains to be made in our condition, and that Buddhism can help with that. So he places the emphasis there on what Buddhism can do in the present world for us today. And I think that the distinction between secular Buddhism and eminent Buddhism is in some senses artificial. Of course, it's an artifice. He's, he's made this distinction. But a lot of people who I think are operating under the label of secular Buddhism are in a way would fall more clearly into his category of eminent Buddhism. And in that, he specifically gives um, Gil Fronstall as an example of an eminent Buddhist in Gill's contribution, Naturalizing Buddhism, he, he says that he views what he considers the original teachings as being focused in the natural world, as not requiring beliefs either for or against supernatural or metaphysical claims. So in his view of, of a naturalistic Buddhism, he's 
moving entirely away from claims on either side. And it's that opposition that I think Vika Bodhi is identifying as the the two ends of what can be considered a spectrum of secular and traditional, that those are, in a sense, formulated around those oppositional claims that Gill, as I read him, says we don't need to bother with. Much of my concern in looking at secular Buddhism has been about the claims of texts and the claims that the teaching that I speaking as some secular Buddhist teacher, that asserting that my version is authoritative, original, pure, unsullied by decay over time. And it seems to me that much of that has a, a kind of naive notion about the textual tradition. The terminology, I think, is useful in giving us more ways of thinking about what Buddhism is in the present. Uh, and that's why I think that the notion of imminent Buddhism and also the notion of a naturalistic Buddhism gives us more categories and helps us to recognize that it's not just an oppositional relationship between traditional uh, Buddhism and secular Buddhism, but rather that there are many different versions of Buddhism, some of which are perhaps more traditional, um, either self-consciously so in the sense of trying to reclaim and preserve, as you mentioned earlier, or secular on the other side, which again may be self-consciously attempting to purify and to focus on what's relevant, only that which is relevant in the present day, but that those are two of many, many different ways of being a Buddhist in the present. I think it's always good as well if people are playing with concepts and terms that, that open up you know, frontiers of, of, of thought and discourse and uh, critique, but also reflection, yeah? Um, I think there's still a tendency for a lot of people to shy away from thinking more, not just critically, but creatively about what's actually going on presently and historically, and thinking, you know, well, what it means for a person to make a claim one way or the other about what it is they're actually doing. I think that that is a feature in a sense of the, the postmodern turn within uh, subjectivity is that it forces you to, to have to actually own some of the conceptual baggage that, that surrounds us, but also recognize how we are historically produced and submerged in in practices automatically, whether we're aware of it or not, and in traditions such as, you know, the uh, hedonistic calculus, but also in ideas of the secular, the naturalistic and in this case, uh, this this usage of the imminent, which I think is probably quite quite a good one, actually. So, yeah, nice one, Bhikkhu Bodhi. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, Ron Purse. I'm, I'm, with the time we've got, I'm going to take, again, two phrases, one from Ron Purser, and then, well, there are actually two from Kathleen Gregory, which I found really interesting as well. Ron Persons does some really good work, I think, on neoliberalism and its relationship to Buddhism and mindfulness. Uh, I think he's articulated very well how the two have come together in many contexts and produce, um, well, they're, they're kind of a mirror to the collective dysfunction of our age as we come to terms <laughs> with, <laughs> right? <laughs> come to terms with the, the consequences of neoliberalism which I think he is on its deathbed, to be quite honest, but that doesn't, you know, in any way detract from, from Ron's work. Uh, he uses this phrase, which I think he hasn't used with us before, which is cruel optimism. And I mm. think that kind of captures one of the kind of central 
issues, really, and it links back to the hedonistic calculus. So could you talk about cruel optimism and, and why it might be an issue? Lauren Berlant published a work called Cruel Optimism, which I wish I had read, <laughs> uh, but have not yet. But the idea that there's always some future that you can you know, develop towards or in really crude terms, the image that comes to my mind is the carrot that is hung out in front of the donkey. Not that I've ever actually seen this come to think of it, but it's certainly an image um, I kind of grew up with. The carrot hangs there out in front of the donkey who continues to walk towards it. But because the carrot is attached to the cart that the donkey is pulling, the donkey's never going to get there. Optimism about infinite perfectibility of the human condition serves as a really to enforce really cruel kinds of ways of being in the world. In terms of psychology, in terms of personal psychology, I know that the the sense of trying to be perfect is not only self-defeating, but imposes a burden on oneself, a constant kind of attentiveness to what one is doing, constantly monitoring one's thoughts and actions in order to be perfect. And that that is a very cruel burden for us to take on for ourselves. The images that neoliberal ideology um, offers about how we can continue to get better if we just use the right products, engage in the right kinds of activities, you know, the <clears throat> advertising imagery of what it's going to be like when you purchase whatever product. You know, certainly that's the kind of imagery that is employed in the holiday industry, offering you this idyllic environment, warm beaches and sunshine, which may or may not actually be there, and which even if they are there, you eventually have to come home from. <laughs> um, so I, I, I think of cruel optimism in terms of that mistaken notion of permanence mm -hmm. that feeds so much of our engagement with the world that the mistake that somehow being able to go on that luxury vacation is going to be permanent. I mean, we obviously we don't think about those in those terms. We know when asked, you know, it's, it's a two week cruise or, you know, a weekend in a lodge or, you know, whatever it may be, we know that consciously. And yet the unconscious notion of permanence of these things tend to make us want to do them be for reasons other than recognizing that they are themselves impermanent. Mm -hmm. I admit that I don't know that I have done the concept of cruel optimism and adequate representation there, but it's more like how I feel about the notion of what it is that is presented to us in that optimistic sense. And I think that Buddhism addresses that with the notion of impermanence. It undermines the optimistic view, which is not, try to be clear here, that's not meaning that we should go to the opposite kind of Schopenhauer view, uh, that everything's a bummer. Um, but rather, impermanence change is itself the process of life that we are enmeshed in. So the impermanence of that vacation need not be disappointing. It's part of the whole. It's part of the process. It's part of the reality of impermanence of human existence. You you mentioned something as well in the middle there about 
you know, unconscious, the unconscious. So we're aware of these things, but still unconsciously we're kind of saturated by these forms of desire which shape the way we relate to these experiences. And I think I think that's so important. I think that's why um, certainly I've argued in the past and, and many have that you can't be a practitioner of just the subjective, the subjective. You can't just be a practitioner of well-being, yeah? You can't just be someone who engages with a singular form of Buddhist thought today, uh, whether that be secular or traditional, because it, it doesn't equip you with, I think, the consciousness that you need in order to confront these kinds of unconscious drives, which many, in many cases are the product of relatively recent developments in human history. It's fascinating to take on board just that concept, how optimism can actually be cruel. When you look at some of the earlier writings on neoliberalism, they, they often bring this back to, you know, America and the history of modern America and the Protestant ideal. If we kind of go beyond that, which, you know, as a European is, is gets a bit annoying sometimes, always being dragged into the, the Americanization of everything, but at the bigger picture view, there is a there is a really interesting question there, right? About well, what do we do then? What do we do if we come to terms with the fact that that kind of drive to be better, to work on ourselves, to to confront you know drives such as laziness and self indulgence and just you know not contributing to anything that that those are real things that exist beyond neoliberalism and cruel optimism. I think it does set us up with a kind of interesting set of challenges that all of us need to be thinking about a little bit more seriously. But without the historical context or the recognition of these unconscious drives, I think it's difficult to do that in any kind of meaningful or powerful way that disrupts this collective blindness that we still seem to be living through at this stage. So, yeah, all very interesting. And and I think that's a good sort of leap-off point to Kathleen Gregory, who who talks about uh, the divided self and paradoxes within the mindfulness movement and obviously the role of psychology. So Kathleen is the last person I'm going to talk about before we bring the discussion back to you and your final contribution, which also touches on unconscious dynamics. I'll say to the listeners, I think this is the most interesting feature of the book as a whole, and I think that is a meaningful uh, contribution. I'm, I'm kind of trying to plug that slightly here in, in these this uh, follow-up to what you said. Gregory explores three of the paradoxes of the modern mindfulness movement. First, while teaching that one should hold a non-judgmental attitude, judgments about the adequacy of one's practice and progress reinforce a negative attitude towards oneself. Second, okay, that actually picks up on a point you said before, uh, constantly paying attention can contribute to heightened vigilance and anxiety. Third, focusing on the present moment is promoted as the means of achieving some future goal. Cumulatively, these reinforce the divided self, uh, which in the therapeutic culture becomes the manipulative self who is working to better the inadequate self. How does Kathleen develop on the themes that you described before in the fragmented and divided self through her discussion of the paradoxes in the mindfulness movement? Paradoxical character of the way in which mindfulness is presented is a very essential part of the way in which Kathleen shows the limitations of the psychological view as practiced in those environments. And I know from having talked with Kathleen that her concerns here come out of her own therapeutic practice, her own practice as a psychotherapist, working with 
meditators. So these are not just merely conceptual contradictions, but they're contradictions that people have lived with and brought to her for discussion in that uh, therapeutic setting. So, yeah, being told to be not judgmental. From my own perspective, that's a very useful tool for teaching meditation practice, but that's different from how one lives their life. In other words, being non-judgmental is not a stance that one has all the time, but rather for the duration of the practice. But when it becomes the source of self-criticism, oh, I'm being judgmental. I should be non-judgmental. She is identified as, as an impediment, in fact, to the kind of growth that is possible in practice, that turning this into some reason to be critical of oneself. Of course, we can do that with most anything, um, and this being non-judgmental is just um, one instance of that, becomes self-defeating. And in the same way, the kind of heightened vigilance, uh, self-attention, watching oneself all the time, again, it's a, it fragments oneself in an unhealthy way of trying to always be in charge of every action. And since that's impossible, to set it as a standard, to set it as a goal, is itself going to be setting oneself up for failure. And the divided self is, I think, something that is, from the perspective that I'm bringing, the divided self is one of the two views uh, about the self. And the question is, is it a useful view? Does it have benefits from, from adopting that view? Certainly, if one is set in opposition to oneself, that kind of division is probably not going to be helpful. And that's where the extremes of self-criticism are not useful. Um, and uh, let me speak from personal experience here. I mean, just being critical of oneself doesn't affect change necessarily. It can rather reinforce the sense of not being of value and not being worthy, and that those become obstacles then to continuing to develop and, and value oneself and move forward with the practice. So all of these three nest together, as I understand, as I see it, and that the self-critical judgments, the constant vigilance in search of, of changing oneself, of being cautious about every thought and action, that these are are not useful ways of structuring uh, one's relationship to the practice and to the, the possibilities of growth. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a good point for us to to move towards your own contribution because, I mean, what we've basically been doing so far is uh, increasingly talking about unconscious drives and unconscious dynamics uh, at play within both the you know, shared social spaces of practice, but also within the subjectivity of a practitioner. Um, let's talk about your contribution explicitly. So, you know, it, it talks about unconscious dynamics. So it links directly to the title of the, the, the book itself. Tell us a bit more about your contribution. We've spoken, like I said, quite a bit about these unconscious drives. How does that come together in the final section of the book, which is which is your own work? The orientation that I take to this is basically as kind of an intellectual history of looking at the background 
within uh, Western culture that informs so much of the secularizing discourse. And so what I see as some of the conscious aspects of that do grow out of the Protestant foundations. You know, 19th century liberal Protestant views are widespread, not knowingly, but are in the background, in the cultural background uh, that inform the development of the secularizing discourse. And the instance of, of those, I think, are rooted in the conceptions in popular religious culture and that the secularizing discourse draws on those. One of those is what was explicitly a Protestant notion of the priesthood of all believers. That is that anyone has the requisite religious status to proclaim the gospel, uh, to forgive sins, uh, to offer prayers for others, that these are what it means to be a Christian believer is to give the status of priesthood to, to all baptized Christians. This is in opposition, of course, to the notion that the, the priests had a, a particular status, a particular religious status that contrasted with that of, uh, of lay people. Although not using that specific kind of terminology, much of what is talked about, about the uh, way in which everyone has the potential for awakening, that meditation practice is applicable for all people, not just for monastic professionals, that these are reflections of that notion of the priesthood of all believers. One of the themes that I keep coming back to is the notion of overdetermination. What happens in overdetermination is that something in Western culture, uh, popular religious culture, appears to match up with something from the Buddhist tradition, and that therefore that interpretation of it, the interpretation of it that fits with that, becomes the way in which the Buddhist teachings are presented. And so certainly it's true that there are versions of the Buddhist tradition that say, yes, everyone has the potential for awakening. Tathagatagarbha is universal. And yet that notion is not, in fact, identical with the notion of the priesthood of all, all believers. And yet the two get conflated in a very easy fashion, as if saying that everyone has Tathagatagarbha means that everyone can become a, a, a teacher, a non-monastic teacher of one kind or another. It's really difficult to untangle these because of this the fact that there is this overdetermination, that we automatically see something like the teaching of Tathagatagarbha from the perspective of our own religious culture. And so it, it is a task of scholarship to question that, to question that understanding. Another one of the kinds of conscious um, influences from Protestant cultures and opposition to ritual, the negative valuation of ritual as something that is empty form, uh, is very deeply rooted in the Protestant background of contemporary uh, Western religious culture. And the very opposition between meditation and ritual is part of that way of valuing one at the expense of the other. And yet it seems once one stands back from the preconception that those are oppositional categories and looks at what's going on, meditation is a highly ritualized activity. And just because some people find it of value 
and is having benefits and effect in their lives does not mean that it's not ritual. Um, it's a preconception about the nature of ritual as empty and meaningless rather than a description of ritual, an understanding of ritual as a certain kind of pattern of behavior and activity. So that neglect or disregard or, in fact, um, opposition to ritual uh, is rooted in that uh, Protestant culture. In the same way, the notion of textual fundamentalism, that there is some text that is the authority for, upon which I will then act. The idea that one should or shouldn't accept an idea of teaching because it's found in some particular text avoids the responsibility for choosing which text to follow. So one can choose texts or fragments of texts from one canon or the other and construct radically different views, radically different representations uh, of Buddhism. The very idea that one has to reference back to some source text is itself part of that Protestant religious culture that we're broadly enmeshed in. That is the, the culture that we live in. So that way of relating to the textual tradition of Buddhism, and you know, this no doubt shows my own background as an academic, but I think that the, the whole of the canon needs to be respected, if not seen as a, you know, individually appropriate for my own practice. So the, the very notion of textual fundamentalism, the, the clinging to some particular text as a source of truth and the touchstone for what Buddhism is, uh, is part of that culture, part of the culture that we exist in. Equally so is the quest for the purity of origins. What I've referred to as the rhetoric of dictance is pretty widely recognized in a variety of sources, which is a fundamentally that theological view of history, um, an interpretation of history that is imposed on it, uh, a way of writing history as religions beginning in some pure, original insight or revelation uh, that some individual has, and that that original pure experience then becomes uh, decayed over time as it's expressed in words, as it's written down in texts, as it's institutionalized, as it's ritualized, and that therefore over time the original pure teaching becomes ineffective because it's ossified, it's encrusted with these cultural attachments, that that image of history then brings about the notion, includes within it, the notion that there needs to be a purification and a return to the original. So there's this view of decline and return uh, of reform or revival. But that is a view that is imposed on history. It's an interpretation that is structures the way in which history is, is written. I came across this most clearly for myself in the, in the discussions of the Kamakura era of Buddhism, which much of the now significantly older uh, scholarship treated it as an analogy to the Protestant Reformation and treated figures like uh, Shinran and Honan, Nichiren, um, Dogen as equivalent to or as analogs for figures like Luther or the other 
major founders of the uh, Protestant tradition. What I saw was that the way in which the history of Kamakura Buddhism was being written was being structured by that analogy, that there would be other ways of writing that history. And certainly some of the fellow scholars who began to look at other figures uh, in the Kamakura era began to loosen up the imposition of that historical narrative and help to see that it is just that. It's just a way of writing history. So the, you know, the notion that the origins are pure uh, and that we need to return to those because of a decay over time in which they've been encrusted in the religion of Buddhism is itself rooted in Protestant uh, character of popular religious culture in the West and is just a way of thinking about history. Yeah. Yeah, these damn Protestants, they're just still there, aren't they? <laughs> I have great respect for all of my Protestant colleagues. Um, of course, of course. The ones that, that I know are not what I'm talking about. Um, yeah. Because what I'm talking about, what I'm trying to be clear about is that this is not about Protestants, um, that this is about the heritage of the Protestant uh, Reformation that remains a strong and determinative factor in the way in which Buddhism is understood in the present. Some of my best friends are Protestants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course they are. <laughs> yeah. yeah, good. Well, look, Richard, we're we're out of time, um, and I'm glad we managed to cover so much ground. And I wish you all the best of luck with the book and uh, with your your subsequent uh, academic work too. The theme of unconscious drives and their role in shaping subjectivity is not going anywhere. And uh, it's a rabbit hole that, that many practitioners might do well to go down at the same time as perhaps they become better read on the you know tradition and the history of the traditions that they may or may not be part of. So so there it is. Thanks. Uh, thanks for the work. And just to remind everybody that uh, this book is uh, published by Shambhala and it's accessible it's not a strictly academic text and i think if you found the conversation interesting today um that's the kind of level of accessibility you're going to find with the text itself so take a look and see what you think richard uh all the best and uh you take care thank you very much matthew i really appreciate you inviting me to come back on uh your podcast and uh i wish you the best of luck with your continuing project here Cuckoo, as they say in Italy. Or, hey there, if you're American, and you're right, mate, if you're from the UK. Look, really, how many of these episodes have you listened to? How much have you got out of these conversations? And all that hard work we put into them. If you've gained value from the podcast, go ahead and make a donation. Give something back. Call it Dana, if it makes it more palatable you know it's the right thing to do. We get so much from the internet for free that we too often forget the hard-working men and women are giving up their time, energy and effort to make it for you. None of it is free. And that includes this podcast. Visit imperfectbuddha.com Scroll down on the right for the donation button and do your part. Thank you.